Letter 92, Part 4 of Letters of John Keats to His Family and Friends Edited by Sidney Colvin This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo To George and Georgiana Keats Wednesday evening, April 28th La belle dame sans merci Oh, what can ail thee, knight? at arms alone and palely loitering the sedge has withered from the lake and no birds sing oh what can ail thee knight at arms so haggard and so woe begone the squirrel's granary is full and the harvest's done i see a lily on thy brow with anguish moist and fever dew and on thy cheek a fading rose fast withereth too I met a lady in the meads, full beautiful, a fairy's child. Her hair was long, her foot was light, and her eyes were wild. I made a garland for her head, and bracelets too, and fragrant zone. She looked at me as she did love, and made sweet moan. I set her on my pacing steed, and nothing else saw all day long. For sidelong would she bend and sing a fairy song she found me roots of relish sweet and honey wild and mana dew and sure in language strange she said i love thee true she took me to her elfin grot and there she wept and sighed full sore and there i shut her wild wild eyes with kisses for and there she lulled me asleep and there i dreamed ah woe betide the latest dream I ever dreamt on the cold hillside. I saw pale kings and princes too, pale warriors, death pale were they all. They cried, La belle dame sans merci, thee hath in thrall. I saw their starved lips in the gloam, with horrid warning gaped wide, and I awoke and found me here on the cold hillside and this is why i sojourn here alone and palely loitering though the sedge is withered from the lake and no birds sing why four kisses you will say why four because i wish to restrain the headlong impetuosity of my muse she would have fain said score without hurting the rhyme but we must temper the imagination as the critics say with judgment i was obliged to choose an even number that both eyes might have fair play and to speak truly i think two apiece quite sufficient suppose i had said seven there would have been three and a half apiece a very awkward affair and well got out of on my side later chorus of fairies four fire air earth and water salamander zephyr duskitha and Brianna. Salamander, happy, happy, glowing fire. Zephyr, fragrant air, delicious light. Duskitha, let me to my glooms retire. Brima, I to green weed rivers bright. Salamander, happy, happy, glowing fire, dazzling bowers of soft retire. Ever let my nourished wing like a bat still wandering, faintly fan your fiery spaces 
spirit soul in deadly places and on haunted roar and blaze open eyes that never daze let me see the myriad shapes of men and beasts and fish and apes portrayed in many a fiery den and wrought by spoomy bitumen on the deep intenser roof arched every way aloof let me breathe upon my skies and anger their live tapestries free from cold and every care of chilly rain and shivering air zephyr sprite of fire away away or your very round delay will sear my plumage newly budded from its quilled sheath and studded with the self-same dews that fell on the may-grown asphodel sprite of fire away away Briamma. sprite of fire away away zephyr blue-eyed fairy turn and see my cool sad shaded urn where it rests its mossy brim mid water mint and cresses dim and the flowers in sweet troubles lift their eyes above the bubbles like our queen when she would please to sleep in oberon will tease love me blue-eyed fairy true soothly i am sick for you zephyr gentle Briamma, by the first violet young nature nursed i will bathe myself with thee so you sometime follow me to my home far far and west far beyond the searching quest of the golden-browed sun come with me o'er tops of trees to my fragrant palaces where they ever floating are beneath the cherish of a star called vesper who with silver veil ever hides his brilliance pale ever gently drowsed doth keep twilight of the fays to sleep fear not that your watery hair will thirst in droughty ringlets there clouds of stored summer rains thou shalt taste before the stains of the mountain soil they take and too unlucent for thee make i love thee crystal fairy true sooth i am as sick for you salamander out ye aqueous fairies out chilly lovers what a rout keep ye with your frozen breath colder than the mortal death adder-eyed dusketha speak shall we leave them and go seek in the earth's wild entrails old couches warm as theirs is cold oh for a fiery gloom in thee dusketha so enchantingly freckled winged and lizard sided dusketha by thee sprite will i be guided i care not for cold or heat frost and flame or sparks or sleet to my essence are the same but i honour more the flame sprite of fire i follow thee wheresoever it may be to the torrid spouts and fountains underneath earthquaked mountains or at thy supreme desire touch the very pulse of fire with my bare unlidded eyes salamander sweet dusketha paradise off ye icy spirits fly frosty creatures of the sky dusketha breathe upon them fiery sprite zephyr briamma to each other away away to our delight salamander 
Go feed on icicles while we, bedded in tongued flames, will be. Deskitha, lead me to those feverous glooms, sprite to fire. Briama, me to the blooms, blue-eyed zephyr of those flowers, far in the west where the may cloud lowers, and the beams of still vesper where winds are all whist, are shed through the rain and the milder mist, and twilight your floating bowers. I have been reading lately two very different books, Robertson's America and Voltaire's Cycle de Louis the Fourteenth. It is like walking arm in arm between Pizarro and the great little monarch. In how lamentable a case do we see the great body of the people in both instances, in the first, where men might seem to inherit quiet of mind from unsophisticated senses, from uncontamination of civilization, and especially from their being, as it were, estranged from the mutual helps of society and its mutual injuries, and thereby more immediately under the protection of providence, even there they have mortal pains to bear as bad, or even worse than bailiffs, debts, and poverties of civilized life. The whole appears to resolve into this, that man is originally a poor forked creature subject to the same mischances as the beast of the forest, destined to hardships and disquietude of some kind or other. If he improves by degrees his bodily accommodations and comforts, at each stage, at each ascent, there are waiting for him a fresh set of annoyances. He is mortal, and there is still a heaven with its stars above his head. The most interesting question that can come before us is, how far, by the persevering endeavors of a seldom-appearing Socrates, mankind may be made happy? I can imagine such happiness carried to an extreme, but what must it end in? Death. And who could in such a case bear with death? The whole troubles of life, which are now frittered away in a series of years, would then be accumulated for the last days of a being, who instead of hailing its approach, would leave this world as Eve left paradise. But in truth, I do not at all believe in this sort of perfectibility. The nature of the world will not admit to it. The inhabitants of the world will correspond to itself. Let the fish philosophize the ice away from the rivers in winter time, and they shall be a continual play in the tepid delight of summer. Look at the poles and at the sands of Africa, whirlpools and volcanoes. Let men exterminate them, and I will say that they may arrive at earthly happiness. The point at which man may arrive is as far as the parallel state in inanimate nature, and no further. For instance, suppose a rose to have sensation. It blooms on a beautiful morning. It enjoys itself, but then comes a cold wind, a hot sun. It cannot escape it. It cannot destroy its annoyance. They are as native to the world as itself. No more can man be happy in spite. The worldly elements will prey upon his nature. The common cognomen of this world, among the misguided and superstitious, is a veil of tears, from which we are to be redeemed by a certain arbitrary interposition of God and taken to heaven. What a little circumscribed, straitened notion! Call the world, if you please, the veil of soul-making. Then you will find out the use of the world. I am speaking now in the highest terms for human nature, admitting it to be immortal, 
which I will here take for granted for the purpose of showing a thought which has struck me concerning it. I say soul-making. Soul is distinguished from an intelligence. There may be intelligences or sparks of the divinity in millions, but they are not souls till they acquire identities, till each one is personally itself. Intelligences are atoms of perception. They know and they see, and they are pure. In short, they are God. How then are souls to be made? How then are these sparks which are God to have identity given them, so as ever to possess a bliss peculiar to each one's individual existence? How, but by the medium of a world like this? This point I sincerely wish to consider, because I think it is a grander system of salvation than the Christian religion, or rather, it is a system of spirit creation. This is effected by three grand materials acting the one upon the other for a series of years. These three materials are the intelligence, the human heart, as distinguished from intelligence or mind, and the world or elemental space, suited for the proper action of mind and heart on each other for the purpose of forming the soul or intelligence destined to possess the sense of identity. I can scarcely express what I but dimly perceive, and yet I think I perceive it, that you may judge the more clearly, I will put it in the most homely form possible. I will call the world a school instituted for the purpose of teaching little children to read. I will call the human heart the horn book used in that school, and I will call the child able to read the soul made from that school and its horn book. Do you not see how necessary a world of pains and troubles is to school an intelligence and make it a soul, a place where the heart must feel and suffer in a thousand diverse ways. Not merely is the heart a hornbook, it is the mind's Bible, it is the mind's experience, it is the text from which the mind or intelligence sucks its identity. As various as the lives of men are, so various becomes their souls. And thus does God make individual beings souls identical souls of the sparks of his own essence this appears to me a faint sketch of a system of salvation which does not offend our reason and humanity i am convinced that many difficulties which christians labor under would vanish before it there is one which even now strikes me the salvation of children in them the spark or intelligence returns to god without any identity it having had no time to learn of and be altered by the heart or seat of the human passions it is pretty generally suspected that the christian scheme has been copied from the ancient persian and greek philosophers why may they not have made this simple thing even more simple for common apprehension by introducing mediators and personages in the same manner as in the heathen mythology abstractions are personified seriously i think it probable that this system of soul-making may have been the parent of all the more palpable and personal schemes of redemption among the Zoroastrians, the Christians, and the Hindus. For as one part of the human species must have their carved Jupiter, so another part must have the more palpable and named Mediator and Saviour, their Christ, their Oromanes, and their Vishnu. If what I have said should not be plain enough, as I fear it may not be, I will put you in the place where I began in this series of thoughts. I mean, I began by seeing how man was formed by circumstances, 
and what are circumstances but touchstones of his heart and what are touchstones but provings of his heart but fortifiers or alterers of his nature and what is altered nature but his soul and what was his soul before it came into the world and had these provings and alterations and perfectionings an intelligence without identity and how is this identity to be made through the medium of the heart and how is the heart to become this medium but in a world of circumstances there now i think what with poetry and theology you may thank your stars that my pen is not very long-winded yesterday i received two letters from your mother and henry which i shall send by young birkbeck with this friday april thirtieth brown has been here rummaging up some of my old sins that is to say sonnets i do not think you remember them so i will copy them out as well as two or three lately written i have just written one on fame which brown is transcribing and he has his book in mine i must employ myself perhaps in a sonnet on the same subject on fame you cannot eat your cake and have it too proverb how fevered is that man who cannot look upon his mortal days with temperate blood who vexes all the leaves of his life's book and robs his fair name of its maidenhood it is as if the rose should pluck herself or the ripe plum finger its misty bloom as if a clear lake meddling with itself should cloud its clearness with a muddy gloom but the rose leaves herself upon the briar for winds to kiss and grateful bees to feed and the ripe plum still wears its dim attire the undisturbed lake has crystal space why then should man teasing the world for grace spoil his salvation by a fierce miscreed another on fame fame like a wayward girl will still be coy to those who woo her with too slavish knees but makes surrender to some thoughtless boy and dotes the more upon a heart at ease she is a gypsy will not speak to those who have not learnt to be content without her a jilt whose ear was never whispered close who think the scandal her who would talk about her a very gypsy is she nihilus born sister-in-law to jealous potiphar ye love sick bards repay her scorn for scorn ye love lorn artists madmen that ye are make your best bow to her and bid adieu then if she likes it she will follow you to sleep o soft embalmer of the still midnight shutting with careful fingers and benign our gloom-pleased eyes embowered from the light and shaded in forgetfulness divine o oh, soothest sleep if so it please thee close in midst of this thine hymn my willing eyes await the amen ere thy poppy throws around my bed its dewy charities then save me or the past day will shine upon my pillow breeding many woes save me from curious conscience that still lords its strength for darkness burrowing like a mole turn the key deftly in the oiled wards and seal the hushed casket of my soul the following poem the last i have written is the first and the only one with which i have taken even moderate pains i have for the most part dashed off my lines in a hurry this i have done leisurely 
I think it reads the more richly for it, and will, I hope, encourage me to write other things in even a more peaceable and in a healthy spirit. You must recollect that Psyche was not embodied as goddess before the time of Apuleius, the Platonus who lived under the Augustan age, and consequently the goddess was never worshipped or sacrificed to with any of the ancient fervor, and perhaps never thought of in the old religion. I am more orthodox than to let a heathen goddess be so neglected. Ode to Psyche O goddess, hear these tuneless numbers rung, by sweet enforcement and remembrance dear, and pardon that thy secret should be sung, even into thine own soft-conched ear. Surely I dreamt to-day, or did I see, thy winged Psyche with awakened eyes. I wandered in a forest thoughtlessly, and on the sudden, fainting with surprise, saw two fair creatures couch side by side, in deepest grass, beneath thy whispering fan, of leaves and trembled blossoms where they ran, a brooklet scarce espied, mid hushed, cool rooted flowers fragrant eyed, blue, freckled pink, and budded Syrian, they lay calm breathing on the bedded grass, their arms embraced in their pinions too, their lips touched not, but had not bid adieu, as if disjoined by soft handed slumber, and ready still past kisses to outnumber tender dawn of aurorian love the winged boy i knew but who wast thou happy happy dove his psyche true o latest born and loveliest vision far of all olympus faded hierarchy fairer than phoebe's sapphire regent star or vesper amorous glowworm of the sky fairer than these though temple thou hast none nor altar heaped with flowers, nor virgin choir to make delicious moan upon the midnight hours. No voice, no lute, no pipe, no incense sweet, from chain-swung censer teeming. No shrine, no grove, no oracle, no heat, of pale mouth prophet dreaming. O bloomiest, though too late for antique vows, too too late for the fond believing lyre, when holy were the haunted forest boughs, holy the air, the water, and the fire. Yet even in these days so far retired, from happy pieties thy lucent fans, fluttering among the faint Olympians, I see and sing my own eyes inspired. O oh, let me be thy choir and make a moan upon the midnight hours, thy voice, thy lute, thy pipe, thy incense sweet, from swinged censer teeming, thy shrine, thy grove, thy oracle, thy heat, of pale mouth prophet dreaming. Yes, I will be thy priest and build a fane, in some untrodden region of my mind, where branched thoughts new grown with pleasant pain, instead of pine shall murmur in the wind. Far, far around shall those dark clustered trees fledge the wild ridged mountain steep by steep, and there by zephyr's streams and birds and bees the moss-lain dryad shall be lulled to sleep and in the midst of this wide quietness a rosy sanctuary will i dress with a wreathed trellis of a working brain with buds and bells and stars without a name with all the gardener fancy e'er could feign who breeding flowers 
will never breathe the same and there shall be for thee all soft delight that shadowy thought can win a bright torch and a casement ope at night to let the warm love in here endeth ye ode to psyche insipit altera sonetta i have been endeavouring to discover a better sonnet stanza than we have the legitimate does not suit the language over well from the pouncing rhymes the other kind appears too elegiac and the couplet at the end of it has seldom a pleasing effect i do not pretend to have succeeded it will explain itself if by dull rhymes our english must be chained and like Andromeda the sonnet sweet fettered in spite of pained loveliness let us find out if we must be constrained sandals more interwoven and complete to fit the naked foot of poesy let us inspect the lyre and weigh the stress of every chord and see what may be gained by ear industrious and attention meet misers of sound and syllable no less than midas of his coinage let us be jealous of dead leaves in the bay wreath crown so if we may not let the muse be free she will be bound with garlands of her own may third this is the third of may and everything is in delightful forwardness the violets are not withered before the peeping of the first rose you must let me know everything how parcels come and go what papers you have and what newspapers you want and other things god bless you my dear brother and sister your ever affectionate brother john keats end of letter 92 part 4